takes more than 640K of RAM to be a great software engineer. This is episode 235 of the Soft Skills Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Jameson Dance. I'm your host, Dave Smith. Soft Skills Engineering is a weekly advice show where we answer the non-technical questions about the technical field of software development. Have you heard this quote before, Dave? Yeah, 640K ought to be enough for anyone. Yeah, uh, apparently it's apocryphal. It's no. attributed to Bill Gates as a way to like dunk on him as... What a loser. He was wrong, but I guess he didn't say it. Sorry, Bill. That is so the internet. You know what I mean? Like the internet exists just to like debunk things and and basically spoil everyone's fun. Dunks and blocked dunks. <laughs> if we could harness that energy. Then... But they're, they're always retroactive blocks though. It's like 20 years later. Oh, by the way, you never, you never said that. Yeah, that's true. It's like retractions. Mm. Yeah. You know who said that? Albert Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> I love those Abraham Lincoln quotes on the internet yeah. about the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Do you want to thank our patrons, Dave? Yes, I do. Thank you to those folks that are contributing at the amount where they get a shout out each week. They are Oladapo Fadiyik, Yaren Svainson, Oleksandr, Microconfig.io, Nick Hathaway, Travis Sanders, Dennis Bogdan of Braden Kane, Stephen Armandley, John Grant, Vinlock, The Agile Ventures Charity, Nick Cantor, and Philip John Basile. If you would like to join this illustrious crew, go to softskills.audio and click support us on Patreon. If you do that for a large amount, we'll say your name every week. If you do that for any amount greater than zero, we will send you an invitation to our Slack community where you can join a bunch of fun, hilarious, insightful, and smart people and pretty darn nice people and chat about all things software and not software. The whole gamut. All things. All things. No qualifications. We uh, heard from our listeners about coping with distance during the pandemic. We asked about this a couple episodes ago, and here are some replies. This is from someone named Brandon. Our team did a Zoom escape room, and it was hilarious. We hired a company that offered escape room-style situations through Zoom. The one we did was Stranger Things-styled with our team solving puzzles via screen share and each of us finding clues through our browsers on the internet. We actually had a lot of fun. Okay, that sounds really Great. fun. Like, if you had told me just online escape room, I would have said, lame. But if there's, like, clues hidden on various websites on the internet, that's cool. It almost sounds like a like a capture-the-flag type of thing or an yeah. advent of code type of thing. Yeah. Which would also be very cool. This is another message we got from Courtney Ross. My team has a weekly de-distancing 30-minute chat that can be about anything. Sometimes we talk through the tough bugs we are working on or news or podcasts. Also, we are going to have a virtual cooking class so we can do it together while safely in our homes. I love that. I love the, I love the term de-distancing. That needs to be a new thing. Yeah. Closing. I could use some de-distancing. I could use some closing. <laughs> yeah, I like that idea. I've I've seen that start to become a little bit more common with my company as as they've remained remote after going remote for a little while and they're sort of starting to talk more about how not just about how hard it is vaguely in general terms but the negative effects of missing social interaction and and like explicitly scheduling things to work around it so that's kind of nice to see that that's spreading around yeah okay we got one more message from someone named Tarye Scarset okay I actually they're not named that I can guarantee that's not their name but that's how I pronounced it. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe not super clever, but it really works. My team sits on Discord all day when we have different rooms and everyone can see who is sitting together at any given time. We usually pair using VS Code's live share or just sharing our screens. I could imagine pair programming would be a good way, a good thing to do in this environment. Yeah. And that's probably the first time I've ever said that. <laughs> <laughs> I have enjoyed pairing a lot more since becoming a remote worker than before. Yeah, interesting. I think it's it's easier to introvert while still pair programming. Like I can not smell them if I want to, you know. <laughs> I can can contribute technically but not be exposed completely 
to the the frightening energy of another human. <laughs> that only comes from proximity. Exactly. Yeah, it's psychic energy. Right. <laughs> um, through the ether. Anyways, <laughs> on to our questions. You want to read our first okay. one, Dave? Sure. This comes from an anonymous listener who says, I work as an IC, that's individual contributor, in a team which owns three very different and large parts of the system. Our team is four experienced engineers and one intern. Historically, each person was assigned to a single part, and as you might expect, we have a bus factor problem. With this layout, we're making as much progress as possible, and it helps us to compete on the market, but creates a dangerous situation if someone would decide to leave. Spoiler, I will. (laughs) (laughs) What would you do if you were IC, team lead, or a manager in such a team? We're already exceeding headcount, so that's not an option. So, bus factor problem, but according to my advanced simulations, if you have five people on the team and three major projects, you have a bus factor of 1.6666666. Oh, great. Which is higher than one, so you're doing fine. (laughs) And according to my even more advanced calculations, if one person leaves, then it'll be down to 1.3333333, which is still higher than one. Still good. You have 30% redundancy baked in. Easy peasy. I guess if you only <laughs> count interns as, if they count as zero people, then you only have a bus factor of one once right. you leave. But yeah, that's that's a problem. That's cruel <laughs> if you count them not as humans. <laughs> Do you want to explain what a bus factor is? Because you just did some really advanced mathematics and I'm not sure everyone followed. Yeah, okay, that's a good point. The the metaphor of the bus factor is how in trouble are we if someone how many people need to get hit by a bus for this project to be in trouble? Right. It's kind of morbid when you think about it, I guess. But if if you it have is. a bunch of knowledge like just all enclosed in one person's brain and that person is incapacitated either by bus or more likely by quitting or being fired or I don't know, switching projects or something then how, how much damage is that going to cause? I just have this image of like a venture capital firm investing in a bus company so they can just drive it around and hit their competitors engineers. <laughs> that sounds a lot like organized crimes business model where they just <laughs> murder people so they have fewer competitors. Right. There's some like tired joke about, yeah, what do you think, bunch of venture capitalists, organized crime, but Right. I'll leave that up to you all to. <laughs> oh man. So, so this team's operating pretty lean. Yeah. Or efficient. Oh, heavily optimized. The flip side of the coin. Yeah. I was telling Dave two stories that didn't make any sense, so I'll skip to the point of those two stories, which is that <laughs> the more optimized something is, the more fragile it is. Ooh. Like you can have this highly tuned team where you have exactly the right number of people and everyone's stretched thin but just knows just enough to get stuff done and that's fine and and probably saves budget from headcount if if you're not i don't know wasting people by having extra people that that aren't contributing as much as the dollar amount that it costs to add them but as soon as something disrupts that then you're going to pay a pretty big cost in the delicate machine being thrown out of whack well if it was less efficient you could theoretically you would be spending more money over the long term but you'd absorb these changes more easily right and i was just thinking like okay if you throw the delicate machine out of whack by losing someone now the question becomes do the costs that result from that exceed one more headcount or whatever number of headcount yeah. you would need and these are unknowable no one will ever know the answer to this like right <laughs> impossible <laughs> impossible to tell but 
I will say that people that work on teams generally feel like they have too much work and people that allocate resources or people to teams generally feel like they don't have more money to just give right. all the teams to hire more people. Or more specifically, they feel like asking, how can you do the same thing with fewer people? Exactly. Yeah. Like those incentives are, it's pretty consistent that people on the ground feel like we don't have enough people, people deciding how many people to add feel like I don't have enough stock options. So <laughs> we're at an impasse here and good thing I make the decisions. <laughs> can you imagine if this was a democracy or something? <laughs> Goodness me. That would be very hard for me. <laughs> oh, I got a little sweaty. All right. Good thing my <laughs> Tesla has air-cooled seats. <laughs> they don't, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, now I feel better about not owning one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just thinking, like, what happens to an airplane with zero redundancy? You know, the, the more I learn about airplanes, which is still very little, the more I realize, like, so many of the systems, there are two or three of them. You know, copies. And I'm like, surely this makes the airplane heavy, which means the airplane uses more fuel and costs more to build, mm -hmm. but they don't crash very much. And it all depends on what dollar amount you assign to the value of human life, Dave. That's right. Easy. <laughs> the answer is we waste a lot of money. Yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. There are, there, are, there are industries that are very good at making that trade-off of extra cost versus risk that it avoids. And software is just such a fuzzy field that I feel like most teams are not operating at that level of analysis. And I mean, it costs a lot of money too. It takes an enormous amount of time and money to study your designs and test them and simulate things. And yeah. that gets in the way of your two-week sprint. So it's, it's <laughs> tough to pull off in a lot of software environments. Yeah. And not, not to mention, the soft, most software teams don't need to be as safe as, say, an airplane. Yeah, if my if my modal background does not dismiss, 150 people do not plummet to their death. <laughs> to a <laughs> fiery <is> death. <laughs> yeah. Imagine the pilot touching an iPad in the front of the plane. Oh, no. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh, another modal won't dismiss. An update now? Oh, no. <laughs> How will we land? <laughs> hey, uh, folks, this is your pilot. We're waiting for an iOS update. <laughs> This is kind of a form of debt, I think. We talk about technical debt, where teams have taken on bad practices or bugs or issues that they knew they were going to have to address eventually, but not now. And this is kind of like that, I think. You're you're kind of running on borrowed time. And, you know, the risk, when you take on technical debt, the risk is that the creditor will come calling before you're ready. And in this case, it's kind of the same thing. The creditor can come calling, and it, the creditor here kind of looks like a bus. Yeah. Or a resignation letter. Yeah, or a, or a job offer. That you can't match because <laughs> you're running <laughs> <Yeah>. so lean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you already converted all that money into bonus for your executives. <laughs> it's gone. I mean, teams like this are kind of defying gravity or defying reality, right? It's like they're kind of just seeing how long they can do this and get away with it. But like you said, it's really hard to know that you're doing this because there's not a number or like a thermometer sitting on the wall that says, uh-oh, danger zone, you know? Yeah. So it's hard to know, but but they are. They're defying gravity and, and there's like this real cost to operate and build this software. And there are companies, like in this case, that are trying to run that at a lower cost. Yeah, almost like they're being incentivized to, to cut cost. There's a, a sneaky, non-helpful answer which I will give, you're welcome, which is you could try and simplify the system. So you mm -hmm. have these three different and large parts of the system, and this will probably take more work. So 
you're already running lean, like you got to figure out a way to do this while keeping these up and running. But right. you, you could try to increase the leverage of those people so that, I don't know, maybe you combine some systems or you make them easier to operate or easier to understand or make changes to or something like something to make your team scale their efforts more. To scale their efforts more. <laughs> like, hey, be smarter and go faster. All right. Yeah. Good Have talk. Have you tried just being better at your job? <laughs> no, but I mean, there's presumably some amount of maintenance that goes into these three systems. If you can make that smaller, then you have more time to do other things or or more time to do stuff that you can't get to right now because you're just stuck maintaining them. There's maybe some incidents that happen. Maybe you can reduce the rate of those. I mean, there's stuff you can do to simplify systems. It's just, yeah. do you have the the resources to do that? Do you have enough time to do that? So simplifying the system you're saying is a means to an end. And the end is that you can spend more time understanding the neighboring system that you don't currently know anything about. I think so. Yeah, like, man, I can't think of a way to do this without just butchering the bus factor metaphor. All buses are not created equal. All, that's not it. Because the bus (laughs) is the thing where you leave the project. You don't need a whole person for every project if the project is... Kind of self-sustaining. Well-designed enough or, yeah, yeah, or easy enough to operate. Then you might still be spread thin, but not as thin, I guess doesn't take yeah. as much of you on, on each project. That's a good point. And then there are also practices that you can do to mitigate the risk of the bus factor, which I'll just name one very basic one that I kind of thought was becoming a de facto standard, but that's code reviews. So if there's individual engineers who own certain parts of the system, they should still have to get their code changes signed off by neighboring engineers. We don't have time. <laughs> the bus is coming. <laughs> we don't have time to do code reviews. Yeah, that's that's the danger with like, just do more things to dig yourself out of this hole is that often you only realize you're in this state when you're so overwhelmed that you can't keep up with just like keeping things running and to say, well, add all these practices or take this big refactoring project on or redesign project on in addition to all you're doing is, is hard to juggle, but absolutely. In fact, every idea I'm having, like for example, design reviews with each other, where you review each other's design, maybe architecture discussions to just deep dive into each other's architecture. Every every idea I'm having is just going to take you away from the day-to-day work, which you're saying... Yeah, it all costs is, time. Yeah, it's basically not an option. But I'm saying you can either take that time now and slowly meter it out under non-pressure circumstances, or you can wait for the bus, and then you're going to have to figure it out anyway. <laughs> Very fast. Jay, sometimes you get hit by the bus, sometimes you get on the bus. That's right. <laughs> yes. So... I mean, the question is, what would you do if you were an IC team leader manager for such a team? And and to me, the answer is, there's not like one thing where you do it and then you go, all done, it's fixed. Yeah. Instead, you have to bake systems into your day-to-day work so that knowledge sharing happens automatically. And the way you do that, if you can't afford to actually have multiple people working on one system at the same time, then the way you do that is through peer reviews of designs, architecture, and code review. And I just really can't think of another way to do that other than spending yeah. your nights and weekends reading your peers code for fun i mean you could think about maybe like relaxing your slas so <laughs> yeah. you, no i'm serious like oh. <laughs> you don't have time to maintain the same level of operations or or feature development or something and also fix the problem then you will never fix it so you at some point you have to say we'll just stop doing this other thing that seems really important but is is less important than the future of these projects and it'll it'll cause this cost but good thing we can exactly estimate <laughs> right the cost and benefit trade-off yeah i mean it, because our estimates are so good you can just write down an yeah, estimate of zero cost that's true and then tell the business look i'm going to give you something for nothing and they'll be like great 
I love it. And in turn, we will give you something. I mean, <laughs> yeah, have we answered the question? I think so. I think there's one more aspect of it, which is how do you convince your team to buy into this idea when they're already super frazzled and, and barely able to keep up with the work? And I think you kind of subtly have to tell the team, look, we can't afford to run at this pace because we're running in a very high risk scenario. But then you have to tell the business some way of quantifying that risk in a language that they understand, which is usually dollars or delays. Yeah. Dollars and delays speak very loudly. And if you say something like, hey, remember that customer we wanted to sign up and we were able to crank out the code in two months? Well, we can't afford to operate that way anymore because if this bus factor happens, we're going to go two, two months without being able to deliver anything. And do you want to say yeah. that to your next potential client? I think the convincing the team part, I, I bet the team feels it, right? Like it's pretty yeah. common to feel overwhelmed and like you can't keep up and you wish stuff was better or easier or you knew more. And so I think I think if you told the team, hey, we're going to, invest more in making life less hectic and making these things easier to own. I think they'd be on your side with that. Yeah. It's it's the business part that's trickier. That's Dollars an age-old problem of how do you sell like kind of engineering improvements to business. Yeah, exactly. Hey, you know what I want? I want you to pay me the same and I'm going to give you less. Deal? <laughs> but I pinky promise that later on you will get more. Yeah. Or rather... Later on, you will not have gotten even less. <laughs> I will prevent bad things. I mean, disaster avoidance is always harder to sell than yep. disaster recovery. Exactly. And that's where you are. You got to stage a disaster that you narrowly avoid by, <laughs> right, by which, doing this. Oh. A false flag. How about resigning, but it's a fake resignation? <laughs> Psych. <laughs> You're welcome. That was me helping you. Boy, wasn't that scary? We should probably make some changes to our engineering practices. They're like, yeah, starting with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now I think we've answered it. Shall we uh, move on to our next question? Yeah, I'll read the next one. This is from an anonymous listener. I'm a developer with one and a half years of experience and was put on a greenfield project to rapidly develop a new application. We have a contractor that came on board to help with the process. On the very first day of meeting this person, I noticed their propensity to not allow anyone else to talk and to interrupt. Fast forward several months and this person has really become a micromanager. They're requesting the source files from our UI contractor. They got another person kicked off their project because they didn't like the changes they were making, interfering in their development process. They have constantly hoarded all the real dev work and work frequently until 9 p.m. I have voiced my concerns to the PM mainly about the bus factor since laughs are likely coming and this person likely won't be converted, I assume from contractor to full-time. At this point, I am just tuning out on the project. I do the scrap issues the contractor basically doesn't want, but I am seeking learning opportunities elsewhere within the company and have nearly zero interest in the project, which I see as a ticking time bomb. What would you recommend? I could potentially escalate the issue to the manager of our team, but I basically see working with this individual as toxic and the PM as autopiloting to the finish line. Ooh, another bus mention. That's, That's a transportation metaphor here. <laughs> yeah. We have autopilot too. Autopilot. And we got airplanes and buses. That's a feature. Autopilot. Some people pay lots of money for that. Yeah. <laughs> Getting it for free. Yeah. Thanks to this, the contributions of your toxic contractor. <laughs> huh. This is a hard one. I think that the one point in here that makes it really complicated is the fact that this contractor is working crazy, insane hours. It's one thing if you have a team member who's you know, working short hours, delivering crap and not getting things done. It's a totally different thing when you have a contractor who's highly effective and works tons of hours because management likes one of these people. 
<laughs> you know? Yeah. And if you're like, well, I want to try to get this person removed from the team so we can all work better, that's a little harder to do. It could also be, it might not even be that they work lots of hours. Maybe they just work a shifted schedule. Oh, it could be. Where they start work later and then they work later. And that's fine if you're collaborating well, but if you're not collaborating well, then... And it sounds like the contractor has more experience overall than this person with only one one and a half years of experience. Yeah. So I can see that being tough if they just kind of forge ahead on their own and you don't really know what their plan is and you can't kind of predict and work around their weird schedule and they're hard to communicate with in general. That would be tough. Do you think this bus factor mention was a thinly veiled threat against the contractor's life? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they took up your startup <laughs> idea? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, can I borrow your bus for a minute? Thanks. Demonstrating the bus factor as a service, yeah. as a platform. <laughs> oh, man. So in the question, the, the listener calls this person a micromanager, right? Did I read that right? Yeah. I don't really see the behaviors here as micromanagement necessarily. Yeah, maybe that part's not described. I can kind of see it where they they don't let anyone else talk. They kind of dominate the direction and design they sort of like hoard the issues and dole out specific ones i can see that coming across as micromanaging because if you try to do something bigger they might jump in and say well you have to do it this exact way that i would do it i don't know it feels a little connected but they're not your manager but if they're more experienced than you then you can still be micromanaged it turns out yeah yeah for sure we should make a word for someone who's not your manager but they micromanage you anyway micro bug (laughs) <laughs> micro annoy you <laughs> micro irritant yeah what do you think is the worst case scenario here if you just kind of finish the project i mean you get sad that's a possibility <laughs> yeah if layoffs are coming then it's possible that the project will not go very well and you might be impacted well, we're talking worst case that's a really good point like if layoffs come and you're portfolio so to speak is just full of these kind of crappy little jobs side tasks that are unimportant that might put a bullseye on your back yeah that feels like the biggest risk yeah i agree i was thinking like before the layoff comment i was thinking well just kind of tough it out it's a contract yeah. it'll be done soon but and one of the benefits of a contractor is usually they're pretty transactional by definition you can just right. say hey your contract has ended or i mean sometimes they have fixed dates but often there's a possibility of changing it or something like that right it's much easier to end a work relationship with a contractor than with a full-time employee yeah and and like he like the question asker said that that's probably going to happen here yeah and so maybe i don't know but the question is will you also get removed (laughs) yeah i'm seeking learning opportunities elsewhere in the company and have nearly zero interest in the project which i see as a ticking time bomb So it sounds like they're already doing some work to kind of expand their network and show value elsewhere, Mm -hmm. which makes sense to me and feels like a reasonable thing to do. Yeah. That's quite an issue to the manager of our team. Yeah, I think you should do that. Good idea. You should tell your manager. (laughs) I was assuming the PM was the manager, but maybe that's someone else. I think it's someone else. So you voiced the concerns to the PM, but that was maybe the wrong person to have the conversation with. Yeah. There is a reason that your PM is not super concerned by what you've raised. And it would be good to get that context from them and say, okay, I've raised some concerns. They don't seem to be concerns to you. Can you explain why? Yeah. And a lot of times people can. So I'll tell you, there may be some factors here going on that are outside of your understanding or your knowledge, just because it's outside the lens that you see the world through right now. And I'll tell you that a lot of times as a leader, 
people will come to you with concerns, but you can see the bigger picture and the concerns they have are actually not real concerns. And I think one of the things that you have to do to develop good judgment is understanding when your concerns, which feel very real, are actually not real concerns. Yeah. They aren't as intense as your feelings would would indicate. And that happens, you know, and I had once had a manager say that to me, and I think I had, maybe it was because I just finished a gripe session with him, but he told me, you know, Dave, sometimes I feel really concerned about something, and then I let some time go by, and I realized it wasn't actually that much to be concerned about. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, like four days later, I'm like, ah, he was talking about me. <laughs> Got that's it. weird i don't know what it has to do with what i just told you but uh yeah okay. <laughs> whatever i guess i'll file that away <laughs> so wait a minute and, and and this is this is a very tricky thing for me to say because sometimes you have concerns and they are very real and everyone around you is trying to convince you that they're not real yeah. So that's also hard. And that's all part of developing good judgment is experiencing enough of these situations to say which ones are real and which ones are fake. Yeah. So I could see the PM not being concerned if they feel like, sure sucks for your job, but the project seems to be moving okay. You know, like things are getting done and it broadly seems like it's going to deliver what it needs to on time. So maybe they're right. Or maybe they don't see the the cost of the contractor's technical decisions or information hoarding or something like that. But yeah. hopefully they're looking at, it's not shocking to me that the PM is not thinking about like what it's like to work with the contractor. Yeah. Because that's not really their job. It'd be cool if they cared about that because that'd just be a nice human thing to do. But that's sort of your manager's job. And the yeah. PM is more about, is the project getting done? That's a very good point. It's kind of not their job. Also, I would say if, you know, you mentioned the listener mentions 1.5 years of experience. I'm going to assume that was all in this one company. And I'll say at 1.5 years, life's too short to live in an environment like this. And there should be plenty of other opportunities for you. And I would look into those. And we haven't said this in a while, but this might be a good place to say, quit your job. To walk away like a cool person from the explosion. Slow-mo walk. Yeah. Okay. I like it. (laughs) All right. Have we answered the question? I think so. Good luck. Sounds painful. I'm sorry. Quit your job. Slow motion explosions don't hurt, though. That's I've verified that by watching a lot of movies. They Good. just don't. <laughs> they don't get you. So you should be okay. Sometimes they might make your hair kind of flop around a little, but that's it. Yeah. Okay. What can people do if they want their own questions answered? Go to softskills.audio and click ask a question where you can fill out our form. Thank you so much to everyone who has done that. We really appreciate it. You keep the show going. And if you want to support the show financially, go to the same website and click support us on Patreon. You can make a one dollar donation one million dollar donation either way you're going to get access to our slack community and we would love to see you there all right we'll catch you next week 